Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This episode's a little different. It focuses on a new book called At Home in London, The Mansion Block, recently co-published by the Architecture Foundation and Mac. I was actually the photographer for the book, which was written by the architect and educator Karen Templin, and looks at the evolution of the London Mansion Block from the 1850s to the present day. It's richly illustrated with plans and sections and archival images and offers this detailed encounter with a type of housing that in many ways was a catalyst for London's metropolitan transformation and continues to define the city's fabric today. Since the book has just come out, I thought I'd take the chance to speak with Templin about the ideas behind it. She and I met earlier this month, that's May of 2023, at Dolphin Square in Pimlico, which happens to be one of the projects included in the book. And the ensuing conversation became this kind of guided tour of that building and the book itself, which you can find out more about at macbooks.com. All right, I'll be back again in two weeks. But for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Karen Templin on the book At Home in London, The Mansion Block. So right now we're standing outside Dolphin Square in Pimlico. And unfortunately, almost comically, it's completely concealed by scaffolding. So what we're seeing is a giant white mass. Like a Christo. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I mean, it's kind of helpful just to illustrate how massive this scheme is. It's basically the size of a whole city block. It's yeah. not that tall. Is it 10 floors? But what we do see are these uh, very large arched openings into the courtyard. I mean, could you tell us a little more about Dolphin Square as a mansion block typology and why it's, it made its way into the book? Well, we're starting here at Dolphin Square actually because it's kind of the one of the extreme examples in the book, which is also typifies in a way the 1930s mansion block because we could see where the block gets massive and we know from reading the plans, which are illustrated in the book, that the flats get much, much smaller. So there are actually over 1,200 flats in this one block and uh, the block itself is much bigger than the town I grew up in, in Ohio. So I've always found it quite um, interesting from that point of view. And as you said, it does take up a whole urban block, although it does back on in a way, or if you will, the terraced houses back onto it. So it's a very strange kind of uh, composition um, of, a, of a block because it ends up making a larger urban block with the, yeah. with the terraced houses that are around. Although it is very different. It is brick with these grand uh, archways um, that you see, especially when you're coming from the river, you see three archways and they had wonderful postcards mm. advertising the developments and showing this of, you know, amazing, luxurious car pulling up in front of the three archways and this very tall, elegant woman stepping out. That's interesting. I mean, as you say, it really is the size of a small village. Yes. And I was reading that there are plans to develop a wharf um, on the river's edge as well. But to your point about the way people access and move through the building, it's as much about how the building meets the city as about the, this inner world that the building's creating. Yes. So this, this idea of street architecture is fundamental to, 
the way you define the mansion block in the book. Yes, absolutely. And the street architecture, of course, comes from the fact that buildings make streets. I mean, that's, those are the streets that we walk down, that we experience. This is how we experience buildings. I always tell my students a slightly made up number, but I still think it's an accurate number that as urban architects, 99% of the people that are going to experience our buildings will never step foot inside because they are the buildings that make up the streets. Um, that you pass by on your way to work, school, the park, etc. So, um, so making the street is a fundamental aspect of the mansion block um, throughout the three phases of development. Let's go across the street now and try and get a better picture of what's on the ground floor of this building. So we're kind of approaching the archway now and on either side of us are two entrances into a gallery or an arcade. What, what were in these arcades originally? Uh, well, there were a series of different types of shops, of hairdressers, um, doctor's offices, etc. And as you can see, that some of them have changed over time, but it's, yeah, it's kind of the amenities that a village would need. And that's what we really have here today. The dry cleaners, the coffee shop, um, the off-license, the news agents. This is beautiful. And yeah, the hairstylists, they still do. That was, that was actually a very common feature from the end of the 19th century in some of the bigger mansion blocks were hair salons. Okay. So we're in a relatively narrow, what is called an arcade, a narrow arcade. And on either side of us are these kind of bowing glass shot fronts. There's something quite ornate and almost decadent or very generous at least about the way the arcade is designed. It feels like a classical arcade more yes. than just a utilitarian yes. corridor. Yes, but as we can see here, art and deco details. Absolutely, there's a lot of chrome detailing and a kind of minimal streamlined aesthetic. So let's continue through the arcade. I think we're going to go back through the archway and then into the courtyard now. Yeah, that was another thing that fascinated me about this block in particular. Although we, as you can see in the book, there are many examples actually of commercial units designed directly into the block and some very much for the use, you know, for the, the, the residents in particular. Mm-hmm. And here, just like a village, we do also have, they had the, the swimming pool and the squash courts. The squash courts were very popular in the 1930s. A lot of the larger mansion block developments had them, they designed them in. Um, this also had a nursery, a nursery wing, um, somewhere where you could leave the children. And that was in this building. Well, this, yeah, so this is the, this is the sports center. Uh, okay. But they also had, they had a restaurant um, that overlooked the swimming pool and dancing and, and uh, drinks, etc. in the bar. So effectively a community center. And I guess just for listeners, um, what we've done is we've walked through the archway and then to our, in the middle of the courtyard to the northern end of it is a single story brick building which housed all of these amenities. Yeah, so I mean, I refer to this type as a kind of subtype, a more programmatic type as the club because it offered these types of amenities, including these kind of almost dining clubs, if you will. Um, and once again, it wasn't unique to, to Dolphin Square, but this is certainly one of the biggest and one where you can actually overlook the pool while having dinner and dancing. And I mean, the kind of people who originally would live here, and I think to a certain extent, the kind of people who live here now um, are certainly more middle class. And even at the time, 
uh, it was known to house members of parliament, yes. um, lords, kind of affluent um, yes. society. Yes, this obviously served as a pied de terre for many uh, people, including, as you said, MPs and lords and uh, whatnot, but also, you know, permanent homes for people and, and you know, in uh, much smaller flats than we would have seen in, for example, the 19th century blocks. I think that's something that's worth maybe later on in the conversation um, drilling into a bit to understand how maybe the typology's use or um, value can be extended towards other forms of housing, more affordable forms of housing as well. So where we are now is in the middle of the courtyard, right in front of this fountain. <laughs> yes, we have the actual dolphins here in the middle of the square. And what is essentially a garden square contained within the block, um, but that you can walk through as we are doing now. And on either side, we have these pergolas with vines growing. And then to the other end is a walkway flanked by trees with this grand arch um, out to the, the southern entrance of the scheme. Yeah. Um, yeah, so despite, I mean, the density that we see here and the, the yeah, as you said, the 10 story tall block, um, there is so much open space in the inside. It really does feel like a bit of a haven um, in the city itself. And it's so audible too, just how sequestered we are from even the busy road just yes. outside of the development. And it's interesting. <clears throat> So in plan, um, it's not a simple uh, rectangular form. The building juts in and out. And what that does is it creates these little courtyards between these projecting volumes. Yes. So that you have not only the main central space, but these more in intimate and secluded recesses in the plan. Yes. I think we should go into one and see if there's maybe a place to sit. Yeah, this used to be the site of Thomas Cubitt's uh, workhouse, or the, the, the workshops for all of the development that he was doing in Pimlico. Okay. What else predated Dolphin Square on the site? Well, and then it became the Royal Army uh, clothing uh, depository. So it was always kind of large scale. It was industrial. Mm -hmm. So this was an industrial site until it was developed into Dolphin Square. And this is quite something. So we're now... We're in one of these recessed courtyards and there's this kind of cruciform path with trees planted all around and then this single bench with the Mountain Dew can on it um, in the middle. So we're totally ensconced now <laughs> yes. by, um, by this tiny garden. Um, this is really interesting actually because you can look out to the field um, but you're, you're also completely secluded. Yeah. Um, it's quite beautiful here. No, no, it's very, <laughs> it's, it feels very luxurious. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting just the scales of public to private that we pass through. This giant scheme is able to somehow handle all of those experiences. Yes. From the arcade to the, what is effectively community center to this vast open courtyard to these kind of inner gardens it has it all <laughs> yes exactly on one hand it feels very urban especially with the scale which was you know this, this was the largest uh 
residential apartment block in Europe when it was built in 1937. Um, so we have that kind of massive scale and that kind of grandeur from the outside. But as you said, when we once we come inside, it feels much more of a garden square type or almost a cloister uh, within the city because we're, we're kind of shielded away from all the busyness of the road. And, and then we've got all these little pockets in here. So um, a place to, uh, to hide away. <laughs> so I wonder now if we could for the benefit of listeners, um, just talk through what exactly is a mansion block. The name itself comes from the 1850s when the very first mansion blocks were being built in Victoria Street. Um, they refer to them as yeah the mansions because they resembled the mansions and the nobility in other places in London um, because they were of a larger scale and they had a certain grandeur even though obviously these were uh, you know blocks of flats. So whether it's it's kind of um, working class housing or middle class or even upper class housing, there is, a, there is always a sense of grandeur that is expressed in the elevation and the massing. There's a kind of overall uh, composition that you can read. And of course, they address the street. They make the street. Which we touched on briefly as we were walking through Dolphin Square about this concept of street architecture. Yeah. And maybe that's another distinguishing element that um, you could expand on a bit. Yes. So. So when we talk about street architecture, as I say, I mean, it is first off the acknowledgement that buildings make up urban streets. This is really what defines urban streets. It defines them mass-wise, section-wise, character-wise. Um, and, and it really is our day-to-day -day experience of the cities, of individual streets. Um, therefore, also what makes up the, the structure of the, of the city, the formal structure. Um, what uses take place at ground floor is obviously really important. There are examples in the book be where we have um, commercial, you know, shops at ground floor. There are others where it's housing at ground floor. And then how do you deal with those privacy issues, which is also addressed in many of the details um, of the, the ground floors. We look at the materiality because, you know, I always like to say that the ground floor really is, it's the realm of the pedestrian. That is where the building for us is tactile. That's what we really get. And so, um, you know, obviously, you know, Florence, whatever, we would have the rustication of the, of the plot. See here, we see a little bit more ornate brickwork, um, but that's also, you know, one hand is to, to kind of protect the building, if you will, from the street, but also it does give back something in terms of character to the street. Um, whether we see, you know, bow windows um, added in, in places, bow windows, that, that's, that's actually the Italian way. <laughs> bay windows and what we would say in English. Uh, <laughs> bow windows, yes, in Italian. And I guess it's worth noting for listeners, you are based in Italy, you teach in Florence, you uh, speak Italian. Yes. And yes. the Palazzo is another typology of focus for you as a historian. Well, of yes, I, actually my original, originally my interest in the mansion block grew out of my interest and experience in the Italian Palazzo, the Florentine Palazzo in particular, since that is where I was living before I moved here, uh, way back in 2005. And it was the scale, first and foremost, that I was interested in because I have to say, moving from Florence to London, London felt low at the time. I mean, it felt small in a way, and Florence in a way felt a little bit more metropolitan, but I think it was because of the height of the buildings, the kind of the, the, the street sections, a little more intimate street sections, if you will. So I started looking at the bigger buildings in London, and my attention always went to the mansion blocks. Um, and the mansion blocks across all classes, um, so from the Peabody Estates, like Blackfriars uh, Estate, 
Uh, Peabody is, is, I think, one of the most amazing little examples of, of housing in, uh, in London, but and also very Palazzo-esque um, in its detailing. And Derbyshire did an amazing job with just use, turning those bricks a certain way and uh, being able to create actually these types of archways that we're seeing here, but on a very limited budget. So, so this grandeur isn't always related to money. Um, it's, you know, related to a kind of attitude and way of designing, um, even economically. I think it's worth mentioning that we actually haven't included social housing, at least not in the 19th century, 1930s examples, because there have been other studies and other books published on that type of housing, but there hasn't been anything published on the, the middle class mansion blocks, so the speculative housing mm. uh, blocks, which is also, I think, a very important thing to touch upon and something that we tend to ignore as with architects and even urban historians um, until quite recently, that the role that speculative housing has played in the development of our cities as well as housing itself. Hmm. Uh, maybe it's worth now trying to establish what the urban fabric of London was like before the mansion block took hold. In the book, you mentioned that until the mid-19th century, by far the most common residential typology was the terraced house. There are some misconceptions about how exactly terraced houses were inhabited. That, I mean, even if you mention now that they were designed for the nuclear family, it certainly wasn't the case that every family inhabited um, oh, no. residence. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it was, you know, throughout the 19th century, it was reported that over 75% of the housing, houses in central London were in multiple occupation or occupancy. Um, and that is across all the classes. So we always, we tend to think about, yes, okay, the Victorian city was crowded there because also we have to keep in mind there was this population explosion to go from 1 million people at the turn of the, of the 19th century to two and a half million by the 1850s to five and a half million at the turn of the 20th century. One, aspect there wasn't enough housing for all the people that were coming into to um, London um, but also there wasn't the right type of housing for everybody because as I said it was designed for the nuclear family which as we know in many cases a single family could not afford mm. a single house so therefore yes they would take you know one floor perhaps you know or a set of rooms um, suites of rooms were always advertised apartments were mm -hmm. advertised within uh, within terraced houses because you, yeah. And, and they're without the separation, without uh, structural hygienic sound mm -hmm. separation, insulation between the units, if you will. I mean, in a lot of ways, it sounds not unlike the way that terraced houses are occupied today. No, it's just now like, at least we've put up some walls, we've put in more toilets, you have a separate door in many cases. But this, of course, was across all classes. And that's what we tend to not realize. Um, is that it was it affected every class so it also it really affected the middle classes because they could not in just the same situation we find ourselves today so if, i mean reading the 19th century journals is like oh gosh <laughs> this is like reading today's you know uh today's press because all these middle class uh bachelors families etc um cannot get appropriate housing, cannot get it near where you work, you're commuting all the time, people are putting off marriage and having kids because they can't afford, they can't find appropriate housing. Um, so that was a huge issue, like I said, also in the middle classes, whereas you're starting to get the philanthropic uh, institutes that were the groups that were addressing the, the needs of the, the working classes. Now, the 
terrace houses were also multiple occupancy for the wealthy because a lot of people didn't need a five bedroom didn't and also many cases couldn't afford a five-story uh terrace house or there was no consideration there was no housing let's say for for just couples or small families one child um disabled people and older people obviously that had a, an issue going up and down all those stairs so this was the standard housing that just was not fit for purpose in so many cases yeah i mean it sounds like really the need was based on just how rigid the terrace house was as a typology and its inability to accommodate this variety of yes. um, occupants and also as you were saying before this massive population boom. Yeah, yeah, we do idolize. I think we tend to idolize the terrace house and thinking it, it, it kind of somehow is, is the ideal house and fit, uh, you know, fit the purpose for, for everyone and that, that simply wasn't the case. And so architects and policymakers were looking for another type that could somehow contain this multitude. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about what precedents architects and policymakers were looking to in their search for a more dense form of urban housing? Well, a lot of the early reformers and uh, proponents for the introduction of what was to become known as the mansion block uh, were looking just north up at Scotland, because obviously in Edinburgh and Glasgow they have the tenements, which, you know, we have kind of negative uh, it, it could be <laughs> the tenements could be a kind of negative term where obviously there is just the type of housing which are apartment blocks and now they they were developed in Scotland because Scotland has a very different um, development uh, context let's say so between building laws finance etc uh, I mean the the leasehold system we need to keep in mind is unique to England and Wales and that actually has was a stumbling block for the building of mansion blocks uh, of apartment blocks and the building of more of them when they finally got got started building so that is something that we didn't see in Scotland so they were looking at the the, the uh, flats built on the Scotch uh, principle, as they said, they were also looking across the channel to what was going on in Paris. But obviously, the the, the apartment block had already uh, was already in development in uh, Paris well before Haussmann uh, came in. But then, of course, we saw the city transformed by by the the demolition of um, of streets and, of course, building the Haussmannian uh, block on a large scale. Mm -hmm. So the first mansion blocks, as you were saying before, were built on the site of a slum. It was called Devil's Acre Slum. Devil's Acre, yes. In Westminster. Mm. And this process of, well, first of all, it's urban improvement and there's massive developments in technology as well. You talk about the sewage system being introduced. But I think contemporary listeners will also be interested in the phenomena of slum clearance and how it points to a clear class division. Um, so I want to know more about who the mansion blocks were originally built for and who they displaced. Well, who they displaced were obviously, yes, people of the working classes and less working classes, if, if we will. So, I mean, very poor, but in, in some cases also the, the not so poor. I mean, the, the, the slums are a little bit concentrated, but there were other housing uh, there was other housing surrounding the the actual slums. Uh, so, in the initial slum clearance, 
the owners of the land were paid for the land. So there were, they did actually have like CPOs as well, so compulsory purchase orders mm. to take the land to, to do this regeneration scheme. So a lot of the terms actually we, we can apply to the, what was going on then mm. um, are the same things that we deal with in, in particularly large-scale urban redevelopment today. So CPOs and, and some, yes, urban regeneration. Uh, so the owners of the land, yes, were were uh, paid for their lands, but the tenants were, um, I'd say, essentially pushed off. And I'll get back to that. Um, and of course, more upscale housing. And in the case of Victoria Street, in the form of mansion blocks was created. Now, the mansion blocks were initially imagined for the middle classes and the kind of general middle classes, let's say. So it has an affordable housing type. Um, once they were constructed, though, and they, they started to be inhabited, it was, of course, the lords and the ladies and the MPs um, and other wealthy uh, residents took up uh, housing there because of the, the location uh, primarily. So, so and rents went up quite high, uh, but also the scheme itself from the urban regeneration part ended up being very expensive and bankrupting the commission and the, the bondholders. Um, so it was a financial failure, but as I said, that was actually even before the building started to be built, that it was already in financial trouble, which led to also a belief that these were not profitable. This wasn't a profitable building type. So I think it was slightly unfair um, to the building type for that, that um, because it was obviously taking the weight of the, the financial weight of the, the street. Now, I say those mansion blocks were built for the middle classes. We have other blocks that are just off of Victoria Street that were part of the improvement scheme that were for the working classes, for artisanal housing. Um, so there are several examples, including Peabody. There was a Peabody estate on Victoria Street, which has since been demolished, but there are others that are just off of Victoria Street itself. So there was some reprovision. So I wonder now if we could talk about what conditions led to the decline of the mansion block building in London at the end of the 19th century, as well as their subsequent revival in the 1930s. I mean, this is the way the book itself is structured. You have this kind of um, 19th century typology, and then you revisit it again in the 1930s before jumping to contemporary uh, versions of the type. So, yeah, why was there this pause in mansion block construction, um, and how did it um, gain traction again? I mean, it essentially came down to economics. There were there were it was more financially lucrative to invest in foreign shares for example than in housing so we always have to remember that housing as much as we like to idealize uh, how we could be better building housing it has long been a product that has been built for financial gain um, so what led to the decline is essentially that there was, you know, a change in investment. Um, so, which is slightly ironic in a way because the mansion blocks really hit their peak in the 1890s. So after they kind of stumbled a little bit and there were things in the, the uh, supply side that had to change from, from um, some of the length of lease holds, um, for example, uh, financing systems, etc., to make it possible to actually build uh, uh, profitable mansion blocks. But we, don't, we did see the, the decline because, yeah, other, other forms of investment were just simply more attractive. 
And we saw the return in the 1930s because there was cheap money. Hmm. So there was a reason to, for, for developers to, to invest again in, uh, in mansion blocks. And you have to keep in mind that developer, the, I mean, so much actually changed from the 19th century, within the 19th century period that we were looking at, the, the end of the 19th century, from the 19th century period to the 1930s, and of course from the 1930s to today of how we actually develop and who develops. Um, and of course, you know, society as a whole changed greatly within those periods. You mentioned when we were walking around Dolphin Square earlier that the flat sizes became smaller and the quantity of flats became much larger in the 1930s. And in the book, there's this term that comes up, maison minimum, which was the mantra of the 1930s. And I wonder if we could talk more about this notion um, and how, in general, the 1930s iteration of the mansion block did differ from its predecessor. Um, yes, yeah, the maison uh, minimum, of course, you know, is a term also that Le Corbusier uh, popularized starting in the 1920s. And it was this search for kind of almost an ideal sized flat for the masses. So what is the kind of minimum that you could be comfortable in as we would call them today, these minimum space standards uh, were, were an ideal of, of the architects and of, of architects or even of, of developers at that time. And so the developments of much larger blocks, but with the greater number of, of flats um, really became the theme in the 1930s. And that also had to do with uh, the regeneration um, of, of certain parts of London as well, and of, of, of larger sites, for example, this one, which, which started off as an industrial site and therefore gave us a much larger footprint that mm. therefore a bigger block could be built upon. Mm. Let's move on now to this period between the 1930s and this contemporary moment, the book charts around the rise of the mansion block again, and talk a bit about what was happening to cities in the 1950s. I mean, in the book, you explain that the adoption of modernist architectural and urban design principles resulted in a fundamental shift away from street-based residential models. I wondered if you could expand on that a bit to kind of set the stage of how the shape of the city was changing post-war. Yeah, I think we probably see that more in London than, than most other European capitals at the time, because obviously the destruction of London. And we can see, uh, if we look particularly at the, the council estates that were built after the Second World War, because they were built, in fact, on those modernist ideals. Um, and of course, some of those also started with Le Corbusier, the towers in the park. Uh, we do have all of our, our uh, council towers, our slab block um, housing that even though we did have slab block housing, particularly in the philanthropic housing, uh, apartment blocks, uh, blocks of flats in the 19th century, we do see examples of those. Uh, after the war, the, those types of slab blocks weren't necessarily orientated towards the street. They didn't, they didn't address the street in many cases. They were also you know, orientated due north-south. So it's that um, emphasis on more sanitation and light as opposed to any other kind of trying to create any kind of urban context. Um, and of course, we, you know, we have seen and we have been dealing with some of the, the fallouts. I mean, what, what you're describing is the, the, the modernist urban development is in a way much more object driven. Yes. It's, it's isolated and solipsistic. It's kind of in a way uh, at odds with the city. 
or at least this has been my experience moving through London, when you encounter a modernist development, um, you often somehow get lost in it. Yes. <laughs> it's set back from the street. It's either a tower and a field or a complex of slab blocks with a kind of... Or a combination of the two. <laughs> yeah, a combination of the two with a convoluted route through it. And yes. I, I think maybe like listeners could think to an example like the Beauvoir Estate. It's really a place unto itself. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, I think, well, a lot of the, a lot of these estates we've seen, um, you know, they, they became kind of very inward looking. Exactly. Um, in a sense, turn their backs to the street. As you said, they're pulled off of the, the street line. So we are no longer defining streets. And as you said, it, it really it did become a much more object-based um, urbanism, if we can use that word here. Whereas it, the, the buildings were no longer making spaces from the street to as we're sitting here, you know, and this courtyard is very much made and <laughs> formed by a building, uh, or in other cases, a series of buildings. So that idea, that ideal was effectively lost you know with the post-war rebuilding of the city and in a way we've kind of had to unpick that over the last several decades um, which is what people have been doing and that's what also led to this resurgence of the mansion block this interest in the mansion block using the precedence as a tool to not just design housing today but the recovery of the city and once again we talk about you know urban regeneration schemes mm -hmm. and in many cases the urban regeneration schemes we're talking about today are actually the regeneration of some of these post-war estates um, and so the mansion block is brought in again as a kind of ideal for urban regeneration uh, schemes as we saw uh, even in the 19th century in the, in the 1850s I mean, really, what we see in contemporary mansion blocks is this renewed concern with not only the design of buildings, but the way that buildings in turn design the city. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this return to placemaking, as, as some uh, will say that, yeah, absolutely, the, the role of building and in particular housing because you know any city the majority of the buildings in any city is going to be housing that's just how cities are made up and therefore housing has a, has a very important role in city making um, and so absolutely it's the way that and, and there you know and how we resolve some of those conflicts that we have when you put housing obviously onto a street how do you deal with privacy issues how do you deal with sound issues how do you make it a nice environment for the pedestrian for for users what do you see and you know as well as as a nice home for the person living inside um, so we're, we're you know seen some of those the resurgence of you know well, different materials different articulation of ground floors in particular but but upper floors even the way that buildings are capped off if you will because mm. you know buildings have caps they also cap off the street um, how buildings together singularly or together can form other spaces outdoor uh, public spaces I, yeah I mean that's totally it I mean when I think of a modernist development I think of when we, when we look at the building skin, I think of a curtain wall, or at least I think of a very flat surface. Yes. <laughs> and when we compare that to the kind of housing that's being built today, oftentimes there's much more depth in the facade. There's much deeper reveals, but then as you're explaining as well, the building footprint is much more varied and creates niches or recesses or the kind of 
um, tiny courtyards that we're sitting in right now. Yes, yes. I'm just thinking about what the architect stands to learn from this book. There are many, many things um, that architects can learn from this book. I mean, and we did approach it initially and, and still as, as a primer that, that we want people to be able to, to take this out and, and not just look at the beautiful photos by yourself <laughs> and the beautifully drawn drawings, um, but, but what can we learn from from the planning of such buildings from the 19th century, the 1930s, the, 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 the buildings of today, um, in terms, as I said, of, of circulation, uh, uh, flat layout, how, how buildings can actually, yes, embrace uh, external space. But, but then also we look at the facades. We have, uh, we have elevation drawings so that we can look and compare. And, and looking at the language, looking at also the little tricks that they've done to kind of make those economical Change, changes that, that, that add variety, that add interest, um, and, and a compositional quality to the facade, that there are so many things that we can learn from these buildings, but also, you know, just also the, the street sections. We, we have so many debates today about how tall a building can be, you know, it's the width of the street, but then let's look at all these streets that we actually really like, and a lot of the buildings that, that we really like on the streets, and, and start to see, well, actually, those, those are much taller. Than we have in our mind, and 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 perhaps the street is a little bit uh, less wide. You know, it's a little bit more narrow than, than we had in in our mind. Can we actually build a little bit taller? It would be better to build a little bit taller. Um, it would actually make a better street as well as provide more housing in many cases. I mean, in my experience of photographing the buildings, mm. there's of course a real appreciation for the aesthetics of the projects that as, a, as an architect myself, I can admire the detail and ornamentation and care, and as you say, the grandeur of these buildings. Um, but also, as a photographer, I am a kind of trespasser, I think, and that's interesting as well, because to be a photographer for these projects is to be almost a heightened version of a pedestrian, where you have to get as close as possible to the buildings. And you have to be so obviously looking at them. <laughs> and so to walk around with a big camera um, is in a way to not quite belong. And yet, in many of these schemes, you can get quite close to them, or especially in the case of this project, Dolphin Square, you can go right inside of them as a pedestrian. The street itself, in a way, extends through the development, uh, which certainly is not the case with a lot of modernist proposals. And even in contemporary versions of the mansion block, there still is this added sense of defense or security, which is really hard for any architect to, um, to oppose or argue against. And yet, for me, that's what I took away, especially in photographing the earlier kind of 19th century mansion block types, the fact that there is really something uh, inherently pedestrian about the way these buildings can be experienced. Yes, yeah, and I think that's that is a, one of the many critical <laughs> aspects to take away from this. But no, absolutely, is is how I mean, and and that's something that we're really trying to reconnect with, is how to make nice cities again, how to provide housing, um, and create the types of cities that we all want to live in. Um, and I think that's, that's why there are so many lessons that can be taken from the 19th century and the 1930s blocks, which are, as we can see in the book, as we've just discussed now, are actually very different animals, um, very much related. One comes from the other, but, but they have 
different lessons um, and a multitude of lessons to, to provide us with. And it's, it's really interesting because actually I have a collection and some of those, those, some parts of my collection appear in the book of 19th century postcards that are of certain mansion blocks, the streets where certain mansion blocks are because it was also about the beautification of the city. Um, and it was, it was seen as that as well in, in many cases. So I think that's, uh, that's something that is important for us as architects to, to reconnect with. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Done. Okay, I wasn't okay. Was like, a few times, like, I don't even know what I started on. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word on social media and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Karen Templin, thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening.